I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The murder rate in 2020 was 25% higher than the previous year and the highest annual rate in this century. But at about six murders per 100,000 people, it was lower than at any time from 1968 through 1999 and much lower than the peaks of about 10 murders per 100,000 people in the mid-1970s through 1980 and in the early 1990s. At the same time, 2020 saw a reduction in the rates of other types of crime. What causes crime rates to rise or fall? The higher murder rates last year, combined with lower rates of other types of crime, suggests any analysis needs to separate out different types of crime. Or maybe it's just the case that COVID, which changed so much, altered criminal behavior as well. Economists have brought their analytic tools to study crime and the criminal justice system. And a leading scholar in this area is my guest on Econofact Chats, David Abrams. David received his PhD in economics from MIT, and after that, taught at law schools at the University of Chicago, and since 2008, at the University of Pennsylvania, where he's also on the faculty of the Wharton School. He's a past president and current board member of the Society for Empirical Legal Studies and past chair of the Law and Economics section of the American Association of Law Schools. David, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thank you so much, Michael. David, you recently published an Econofact memo about rates of different types of crimes in 25 of the largest US cities between 2015 and 2020. Drawing on the adage that a picture, or in this case, a graph is worth a thousand words, can you just explain what the graph in your memo shows about how 2020 was really an unusual year with respect to the incidence of crime? Let me see if I can try to conjure up this image, uh, ideally without using a thousand words. Um, right around the COVID lockdown in mid-March of 2020, there was a big uh, and quick drop in crime rates uh, that corresponded approximately to when states started issuing stay-at-home orders. Crime rates stayed low uh, throughout the year, so that drop persisted throughout uh, almost all of 2020. Uh, and especially as we compare it with the previous five years, uh, they were much, much lower in 2020. If you're, if you're imagining this, this uh, graph, you'd also see a little spike right around late May, early June. That came immediately after the death of George Floyd. And this actually corresponded to um, the protests and actually lootings that, that resulted in quite a few uh, burglaries right around that time. So that's just a, a short blip there. But the big story of 2020 uh, is the uh, on crime was the impact of COVID, uh, which caused this, this massive decline overall relative to uh, relatively 
smooth uh, movement of, of crime in, in the previous five years. Yeah, the graph is very striking. I would just direct people to your memo on the account effect site, uh, though you did do a nice job of explaining it. Thanks for that. So David, is the explanation for this basically that with people at home, there were fewer opportunities for street crime or home burglaries? That seems to be the explanation for a lot of what is observed. Uh, many crimes require victims, and when there are fewer people out on the street, there are going to be fewer potential victims for these uh, called crimes of opportunity. I think about like robbery, uh, simple theft, or assault. Um, a lot of these, um, a lot of these need someone or, or objects that are associated with, with people to occur. And so when you have fewer people on the street, you have uh, less of those crimes. One interesting finding is that the timing of the decline was actually slightly ahead of the imposition of stay-at-home orders uh, in most locations. Uh, yeah, there's actually an interesting account effect memo by Lisa Kahn that shows that this phenomenon was similar with respect to spending and other things that people, even before you had the orders, were responding to the health conditions and acting in advance of the actual stay-at-home orders. Right. Uh, it's the same phenomenon that we see that people stopped going out even before stay-at-home orders went into place. And we know this because we have mobility data that comes from people's cell phones. We know when people uh, started staying at home and, and almost everywhere it, it happened a week to two weeks before those orders were actually put into place. But now a couple um, other thoughts about crimes. Um, some crimes don't require victims and still saw big changes. And I'll give you, I'll give you one example, burglary. And burglary is actually data is collected on both, uh, both home burglaries and commercial burglaries. And if you think about it, you might anticipate the results um, that I found, uh, but I didn't think about it ahead of time. But um, as people were staying at home, uh, they were spending less time in commercial establishments. So those were actually one of the few types of crimes that rose as a pandemic hit. Um, but as they were at home, home burglaries dropped pretty substantially. So they went the same way most other types of crimes did. Um, commercial burglaries were one of the few exceptions of, uh, of crime rates that actually rose as the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020. Yeah, I can imagine, for example, a spike in the theft of popcorn machines from empty movie theaters at that time because nobody was there and it was easier to do that. Right, right. Everyone was, everyone was popping at home at that point. Right. <laughs> well, as I indicated in my opening remarks, but it's not the case that the rate of all crimes fell. And in particular, there is the issue of violent crimes and murders. Right. So murder rates... Uh, went up. Now, this started actually a bit later than the, the onset, uh, mid-March, when we saw the big drop in most types of crimes. Murders and also shootings were fairly flat during that period of time, so they didn't drop like most crimes, but they didn't rise either. But they then started rising substantially at, later in the year, starting um, in June, starting in, in early summer, in most places. And this is a pretty widespread phenomenon that we've seen 
um, throughout the country, throughout large cities uh, in the country, and some places have hit hit murder rates in 2020 that were near you know 50 or 60 year highs, um, and so that's extremely counter to this overall trend that through 2020, almost all other types of crimes dropped a lot. What do you find is the most plausible explanation for this? So there have been a lot of uh, theories put out there. I think what is tricky in uh, sifting the good ones from the bad is that they need to be able to account not just for the rise in, in homicides and shootings, but also this overall uh, trend of decline in crime. So, so I'm going to tell you two that I find most plausible. Um, so one of those is what I would call uh, a disequilibrium in criminal markets. And by that, I mean that during the early period of the pandemic, when people's lives were really disrupted and most people were staying at home, you can imagine a number of different types of uh, criminal enterprises also got disrupted. And so we could think about, for example, um, uh, drug dealing and, and in particular organized drug gangs where they might have had particular territories, particular uh, types of drugs uh, that they controlled. And if there was a decline in, in sort of sales and, and usage, when people returned back out uh, onto the street in bigger numbers in late May and early June, that could have led to increased conflict that manifests itself and in increased shootings, increased homicide rates. And it doesn't have to, when I talk about this sort of disequilibrium, it doesn't have to be something as formalized as, as drug markets, but it could even be sort of less uh, organized uh, types of crime that are done on a more local level, but where there was some sort of equilibrium that got shocked by the pandemic. So that's one theory that would explain these more severe crimes shifting that would correspond to, uh, to homicides and shootings. So by equilibrium, that's an, uh, a phrase that economists use. Basically, you're saying that there was sort of, a, there was a stability and people knew whose corner belonged to whom but with such a disruptive event like COVID, people either saw it as an opportunity to take over somebody else's uh, place, or they were really forced to because there was a fall off in their revenues from selling drugs or things like that. So just a really disruptive situation led to a, a condition where people were tempted to try to move in on others. Is That's what you're getting at with that? Right, exactly. And specifically with types of crimes that are more serious and they're going to be more associated with um, with shootings and homicides. That's why we'd see the spike there, but not with uh, and but still the fall in other types of crimes. But that's exactly what um, what I'm thinking about. I'll just mention one other theory that uh, that gets brought up a lot where I have some mixed feelings um, and that's changes in policing. There's, there's very strong evidence that policing changed early on in the pandemic and there were announcements by police departments that they were gonna de-emphasize uh, lower level crimes for a period of time. There's data that shows that police stops dropped precipitously at the beginning of the pandemic. They dropped again precipitously in some cities uh, right after uh, George Floyd's killing. Um, 
And that perception or the change in perception of people about policing could also have impacted crime. Now, that theory has to be modified a little bit because otherwise you'd expect that would lead to increases in all types of crime. So it requires a belief that say, carrying a gun is now less likely to be detected um, because of changes in policing um, and that that's gonna increase the shootings and, and homicides, but that other types of crimes are not as, um, are not gonna be as uh, impacted. So there's probably something to it, but I think you know telling that story is a complicated one. And I don't think we know as of yet um, with any kind of uh, certainty what what has led to this this huge growth in, in homicides and shootings. So these two explanations that you have, um, the change in um, in sort of issues related to perhaps drug violence and also the change in policing, those are related in a way that we saw, as you mentioned in your memo, the biggest fall in crime rates was for drug crimes. So does that mean there is less drug use or does it reflect something else going on? Right. So that almost certainly uh, reflects uh, reflects both a real change in drug use, but also a change in policing, uh, which is what I mentioned. And it's worth briefly talking about where crime data comes from. Some comes from citizen reports, and some of it comes from reports by police. Drug crimes come by and large from reports from police. And we know that they were de-emphasizing in a lot of cities, uh, drug crimes around this time. So almost certainly some of the drug crime drop is due to just a change in reporting. Um, and so it's probably overstated, but there was also, and in, in, in a paper I wrote about this, um, I tested to try to see whether it was all due to a drop in, in a change in reporting behavior and found some pretty strong evidence that at least some of the drop in drug crime, uh, drug crimes was real. So that raises an interesting point. To what extent, David, do crime statistics actually reflect the prevalence of crime? Do we know anything about the variability of the reporting of crimes as compared to actual number of crimes? And does this vary a lot across cities, across different types of crimes, or across different victims of crimes that might be linked to, for example, the racial or their ethnic group and the trust those people have in the police and the criminal justice system. And what does this say more broadly about policing? Right, so crime data is, I think all those, all those issues are, are real ones. Um, crime data, one thing that's nice about it is it tends to be aggregated by the FBI and something called uniform crime reports that takes over a year to get. I wanted to look at this more quickly uh, last year to know what was going on in the pandemic. So I got data directly from uh, over 25 large cities and put it up and it's, and it's still up uh, on my website called citycrimestats.com um, for anyone to look at and, and, uh, and, and play around with. Um, so and that's what you used in your Econofact memo, right? Those statistics. That's, that's exactly right. So I use that in the memo because we can't get the official data that comes from the FBI. It's not going to be released until second half of, of 2021. Um, so I put this together so people could uh, could get a, a more real-time sense of 
what was going on. And that's right, you can see the analysis of it in the Econofact memo. Now, to your question about, you know, is it comparable across cities or even maybe within a city across neighborhoods? Um, the answer is almost certainly some of the reporting is impacted by characteristics like socioeconomic status, race, other characteristics. But what is likely is that over time, these things are generally uh, static within an area, at least if you're looking at relatively short time periods. So while long-term, absolutely these things and, and cross-sectionally, if you look across cities or, or across neighborhoods within the city, these things probably affect uh, the rates. If you're looking at a, a similar location over time, there you should probably be able to be relatively confident uh, in the data. David, that's a great resource. And economists often don't get enough recognition for putting together data sets that other economists or other social scientists can use. So thanks for doing that. And I'd also like to discuss some of your other work as well. You've done research on stop and frisk policies, and these are often viewed as racially biased. The George Floyd protests centered on the issue of racial disparities in policing. What does the evidence that you know about and you've collected say about this? Investigations of several dozen police departments over the past 25 years that have been done by the Department of Justice and also in a smaller number of cases instigated by plaintiff litigation um, has found uh, has found evidence of racial disparities in policing. So I, I've been involved in analyzing disparities myself in a number of cities, some of the work uh, in conjunction with the Department of Justice uh, and some elsewhere. And I've also found um, some evidence for racial disparities in police stops. Now, that doesn't mean it's 100% of the time, but in the data I've looked at, it's pretty frequent. And the conversation in the past year has really started shifting to how do we do a good job and a precise job of identifying racial disparities to a conversation about how do we try to intervene and to decrease these disparities and improve policing uh, when they're discovered. So the evidence you have is that there are in fact racial disparities and that calls for police reform. Do we have any evidence about the efficacy of police reform? One often hears it's the um, bad behavior of just a few bad apples. Is the key thing to identify them and to break down the blue wall of silence or is there more than just that? Right, the, I mean, this is you know, the really tough question. How do you, how do you get police reform? Um, I can tell you, so first on the bad apple theory, which you hear a lot, I can tell you that there is not a lot of evidence supporting uh, the idea that it's just a few bad apples in uh, in police departments that are that are responsible for sort of the bulk of um, of bad incidents or racially disparate incidents. Um, so there was a recent paper by Felipe Gonzalez and Stephen Mello in the American Economic Review um, that found a, a almost half of police officers they examined discriminated on race. Yeah, Felipe and Stephen are right now writing in a kind of fact memo that we hope will appear in the next few weeks on that paper, distilling 
that um, journal article from, you know, our, our listeners may know it's the most prestigious journal in economics. So it's a really important paper, and we're going to be very pleased to have that up on our site. Yeah, it's that that's a great, great paper. Um, they've developed a, a new uh, approach to detecting racial disparities in policing. Um, they did fantastic work there. And I can say that it's consistent with uh, with results that I found in my own analyses that differential treatment by race can be pretty persuasive, uh, pretty pervasive within departments and removing a handful of bad apples is not likely to make a big dent. So what other approaches are being discussed to improve policing? So the economists uh, main tool and main focus always is incentives. Um, a greater focus on incentives and accountability, I think is, is something that is uh, being discussed more than it was. And you mentioned the blue wall of, si uh, of silence, the, the impact of police unions on things. They have historically been resistant to incentives. And they've also sometimes been resistant to even uh, accountability and punishment, even for egregious incidents. It looks like that may be changing to some extent now, but I think that's still gonna be a, a major hurdle but one thing that we can do with respect to incentives is use the existing infrastructure that most police departments have, and they have really good infrastructure for real-time crime uh, tracking, which they have meetings about, it's called CompuStat. Uh, they have meetings about uh, almost weekly uh, in most departments to discuss what are the trends in crime. It would not be hard to use this infrastructure to also look at the performance of individual officers and therefore um, incentivize them uh, in ways that would reduce racial disparities and not just the, the beat officers, but also supervisors uh, as well. And this is a way that you can imagine using data and using incentives to both keep you know, good performance and not lead to uh, spikes in crime, but also ensure that you have uh, better, uh, better efficacy and, and racial neutrality in policing. Yeah, in the Derek Chauvin trial, it was noteworthy that people in the police department were testifying against him, but it was also something that it took a crime of that magnitude of being filmed killing somebody that um, only led to that, that in lots of other cases, you wouldn't break this blue wall of silence. Right. And, you know, and body-worn cameras. I mean, there's increasing use of body-worn cameras and footage. So to me, it's all different types of data that are going to help both departments and the public monitor themselves, monitor their, op their officers, and hopefully uh, improve things. Yeah, improve things. So you mentioned data. And I'd like to ask you a bit, as we complete this interview, how you view the role of economic analysis in understanding crime in the criminal justice system. What does economics offer that's distinct from say sociology or given that you teach in a law school, law itself? And have you found that your work has had an impact on those who are making policies? Well, I think economics offers a level of, of rigor and oftentimes I mean both quantitative rigor and, and theoretical rigor um, that is less emphasized um, in other disciplines, which is not to 
to downplay the importance of sociologists and criminologists who get great depth of knowledge that economists often do not. Um, uh, that is important, but I think what economists bring to the table uh, is these quantitative tools that we have been developing, especially empirical ones, over decades uh, to answer similar types of questions, questions about racial, uh, racial bias uh, and discrimination. Um, that's been a, a huge area of development in the field for the last uh, two, three decades. Um, I think it also, it lends credibility to economists when we work with, uh, with lawyers uh, and with others who are in the system, both with, you know, on both sides, on both the side of the, of the police departments and, and cities um, and, and plaintiffs who are investigating them. So I think it's important and I think it's a great thing that there's been a, a big increase in the number of economists working on, uh, working in this area in the last few years. Um, and have I had an impact? Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, would, I would love to say so, maybe a little one. Um, I've had the chance to work in a number of different cities. There has been progress there. Uh, I hope I was able to make a little, little bit of a dent. That's all I can hope. Well, there's a, a saying from the Talmud that ours is not to um, complete the job, but neither is it ours to not even start. So at least you're starting the job. I like, the, sure... I like the Talmudic quote. You should end each episode with a Talmudic quote. I do as I can. I have to study more Talmud and able to, to do that for every episode. But uh, thanks very much for speaking with me today, David. And thanks for your work in this area, which is really important and, and tremendously interesting as well. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. The Conifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.